You may be seated. Somebody wanted a list of that. So if you can write fast, here they are, or at least the ones that I have so far. I'm not going to go into each of the parts I have listed. I'll just write them down. Reconciliation, repentance, righteousness, revival, reign, restoration, ruling and reigning, renewal, the spirit of receiving, rest, refreshing, revelation, relationship, and the ministry of reconciliation and reaping. Hallelujah. If you got that, praise God. If you didn't, you didn't, praise God. At the expense of being offensive to Hindus, We're going on a cow hunting expedition this morning. And we're going to kill some sacred cows. In fact, we're hunting the most holy cow of Pentecostalism. And uh, by the help and grace of God we're going to so kill that cow that there won't even be any hide left for you to take home with you no horns that he that cow won't be anything but a grease spot on the on the path that you forget about and move forward from and that is the holy cow of church service invitation evangelism which has absolutely zero biblical basis. Zero. Here at Antioch, we have agreed that we will participate in that to this degree on that base, on this basis. That Paul said to be all things to all men, that by all means we might win some. And that sowing should be done. Uh, I'll share this later scripturally. You give a little seven and also to eight. And on that scriptural basis alone, which is not the most, the strongest reason to do this, that we will continue to have a quote-unquote evangelistic service, at least on Sunday mornings, because there are some people who are so absolutely consumed with tradition that uh, that's about the only way you can reach them is them come to church. 1970, when my wife and I came here, September the 12th, 1970, um, I was 24, she was 19. She'd been raised in a preacher's home. Both her parents were preachers. Her dad was a pastor, a home missionary. Her mother was an evangelist. 
So she had so much more experience than I did. Um, but the only thing I knew was to have church and invite people to church. And so since I wasn't willing to have one service and only have one opportunity to invite people, we literally started with four services a week with two of us for over 13 years. The first 13 years, we had Thursday night service, Saturday night service, Sunday morning, and Sunday night service. If you're going to use church service evangelism as your primary church service invitation evangelism as your primary methodology, if you're having less than one service a day, you're a hypocrite. And if you're like many Pentecostal churches who are down to fewer services than they've ever had before, you are you you should be arrested and tried for misrepresenting misrepresenting the gospel. But because if you believe that the primary evangelistic method is church service invitation evangelism and you're cutting out services, boy, you got a problem. I don't want to be in your shoes when you stand before the judge who happens to have scars in his hands and his feet and his side and his back and try to explain to him why that your primary method of reaching people was inviting them to church so they could hear the gospel and you were cutting out church services. I really would like to, I feel bad for you, but I'd love to stand there and see how you try to explain that to him. Because if I truly believed that church service invitation evangelism was God's primary method, I don't know how, if I really want to reach the lost, I don't know how I can have less than one church service a day. Early church must have done that if that was their method because the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, I'm not a bullfighter, but that's the first sword. That's just the first attempt at it. It's already bleeding really bad, isn't it? Because our... Our inconsistency with that is so glaring, it's absolutely, it would be fall on the floor laughable if it wasn't so eternally serious. That our primary method of trying to help people not go to hell for eternity is inviting them to church so they can hear the gospel and we're having less than one church service a day every day of the week. 
The only person people were fooling is ourselves. It, you know, if you deceive me, that's bad. But deceiving myself? Deceiving myself? Sorry. I just didn't get it. I'm so glad I'm saved because I don't know what my chances would be if I was lost. Wouldn't be very good. My chances in any city where there's supposed to be a church that believes the full truth of being saved, my chances of being saved would be very, very slim. Because if I believe that, how many times have I already knocked on every door in my city to invite them to church? If I'm not doing that, I'm, I'm, I've compounded my hypocrisy. If I haven't mobilized everybody out there every day to invite people to church by every means you can imagine, I've even compounded my hypocrisy even more. I was feeling really good till the spirit started moving. I've had a good morning. Good night's sleep. Had a good breakfast. Quaker Oats makes these little Quaker Oat bars, but we found them that's covered in chocolate. I had two of those and a cup of hot tea. I'm good to go. I've had a good day. It's a good day. I came here feeling good. And I opened my mouth, the spirit starts flowing, and all of a sudden, I'm going, okay, okay, okay. Settle down, Lord. It's all right. Okay. It's not okay. Because I'm not the one that emptied myself of the glory as the expression of the I am God and submitted myself to my creation that they did not know who I was and I came unto my own that I thought were mine and they didn't recognize me or receive me and I'm not the one that was crucified by my own people all for the purpose of people being saved I'm not that one And if you think he is calmly, passively observing us in our total paralysis caused by our tradition, while we give lip service to what he did on the cross, oh Lord, are we ever more deceived. Some of us need to go to the chiropractor or even the orthopedic surgeon because we've destroyed our shoulder trying to get our hand to our back from trying to pat ourselves on the back for how, how good the Lord must think we're doing. Oh, Jesus. Father, help us today. Help us today, Father. We can't do this ourselves. 
even facing the truth of this, we become so overwhelmed. Well, if that's not the way, how do we do it? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, let the light of your revelation shine into our hearts and our minds to give us direction, to give us hope. Instead of us feeling so hopeless and helpless because all we've known, you're taking it away from us. Everything we've invested so much in, you're stripping from us. And not too gently at that. Help us, Father. In the name of Jesus. 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 I command that we be delivered from the hopelessness and despair of having put all of our hope in tradition and not even knowing it was tradition while we were doing it of being so blinded and deceived to think that this was you because we never looked and we never asked. Thank you for loving us enough to begin to shine your light on all of this, for beginning to speak to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us your grace that we might die out to ourselves and die out to our methodologies and die out to our concepts and die out to our 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 way of doing things, Father, that we might live under you and live under your plan, live under your purpose, live under your methodologies so we might walk in your spirit and your spirit might empower us to do according to your principles, according to your purposes, that you might fulfill your plan that you have established before the foundation of the world. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, speak grace upon every one of us. And the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge and understanding of you, shine, I loose the light to shine in our hearts that we might see and know and understand and believe and have hope and direction. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. What about, I want to talk about this morning, sowing the gospel seed. The most obvious principle, or that which would seem to be the most obvious principle is, if there's no seed sown, there will be no harvest. Some have taken Jesus' words in... Um, John chapter 4, where he told the disciples, you will reap a harvest upon which you bestowed no labor as the principles for our day. At uh, 
I just need to explain this as briefly as I can. The basic elements of the principle of the grain harvest is the biblically mandated principles that were governed by the laws of God in the Bible. There were times that the that God mandated that certain things be done in a certain way. And all that happened to Israel, according to the word of God, it was hidden, written and happened to them for our learning, for our admonition, upon, for those upon whom the ends of the world are come. So Israel is God's demonstration of principle. What he demonstrated and established in their lives in natural principle that, that was all intended to be uh, illustrations of the spiritual principles that would apply to the church. And so we've already talked about the revival that was necessary. And it wasn't an accidental thing again. That revival was a product of deep repentance and searching and rededication and recommitment. Uh, that was especially, not that it was the only time, but it was especially bounded by two of the most holy, sacred feasts of Israel, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, Yom Kippur being the day of atonement. So, and this is what brought revival, repentance, uh, restoration when it was done sincerely in faith. And then God would pour the rain and the rain would soften the ground and they would plow the ground and it was time to sow the seed. And then there's with a wheat harvest or a grain harvest, there's nothing for you to do in the field from the time the seed is sown till the time it's to be reaped. It's not like growing other types of crop that require maintenance work to be done in the field. In fact, to grow the most uh, wheat you can, you don't leave pathways in the actual crop. It's sown solid. And if you go walking through the field, you're stepping on stuff and killing stuff that would have produced. So you stay out of the field once the seed is sown. Okay. But then, nearing the time of the harvest, uh, there is a another thing that happens. And we'll talk about this in detail tomorrow. No, no life happens without death. The, that when the seed is put on the ground, it dies. It germinates. But there, there comes a birth. It's, it's in human terms... It's the difference between conception, when the seed is sown and, con- and conception takes place, and the birth. And the birth is preceded by and facilitated by travail. And medically, emotionally, mentally, naturally, every way you can imagine, a woman goes to the jaws of death to birth that child. Nowadays, people would just rather have a dog than have a baby, and so or a cat. 
And I'm doing my best not to get off on that because that's really not the will of God. I got nothing against dogs and cats until they're called baby and dressed up and carried around on your lap. That's called unnatural affection. And it's satisfying the need to reproduce with something that doesn't cost you anything because you can leave them in a kennel if you have to. You can't do that with a baby. You can take your dog to an obedience training school, but you can't do that with a child. And since dogs live seven years for every one of ours, we don't have to put up with them all of our lives. That's why we'd rather have a dog or a cat than a child. It's the spirit of our age. It's never been like this in the history of man where such a large proportion of the population had pets they made into family members. I got really bad news for you. I got book that proves your cat and dog's not going to heaven. And all of that emotional energy and love that's put into something that has of no value to the eternal kingdom. That's a perversion. And if you've got a dog or cat, I don't know it. But I can feel the spirit of it in the place. If I keep talking, you'll rise up enough, I'll know exactly who you are. You're talking against my fluffy. Oh, no, I'm not. No, if I was talking against your fluffy, it would be a whole lot straighter than this. Let me tell you what. Okay. Peter would be in here in a, in a heartbeat if I started really telling you how I feel about your fluffy. Hallelujah. So I'm trying to tell you the spiritual side of it, not my personal side. All I got to do to be offensive to people is go in their house and their animal want to come jump up in my lap. And me not respond to that dog. Now, if your child wants to come sit in my lap, that's one thing. Not your dog, not your cat. Sorry. That's your business. It's fine. I got some of you so offended you won't listen to anything else I got to say. That ought to prove where your heart is. Whoo, praise God. The word really does separate, doesn't it? Mm. So, there has to be a death. There's a travail. The scripture says of Jesus' throes of Labor pains. That God saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. So there has to be a dying. Before there can be a resurrection and a reaping. There has to be a dying. 
And just like you can't have a fruitful plowing and sowing without revival that God responds to with the rain to start the process, you can't have a New Testament reaping that does not start with travail. And you can program all the way around travail if you want. But just like he said with the Pharisees, and I've quoted this already, you encompass what land and sea, thank you. You encompass land and sea to make converts, and you make them twofold more the child of hell than you are. Because you bypass dying. You bypass dying. You're going to hear this again, but this is God's pattern this trip. (laughs) The problem comes down to rain is God's blessing upon us. Tears that are shed over a harvest that's to be birthed. It's a move of God. It's not emotional. It's spiritual. These are tears that God prays through us and sheds through us. He told the disciples, you have sorrow now. You will weep now. And the world is rejoicing. But then you're going to, you're going to rejoice. Because when a woman is in travail, she has sorrow. But as soon as the child is born, she forgets that sorrow. That is one of the greatest mysteries of life that no male will ever comprehend. How in the world God is able to wipe all of that out of a woman's mind so that she's willing to do that again the second time or the third time or the, like one dear sister sitting here, 12 times. How do you do that? I've been an observer twice. And every time while I'm praying for her, I'm thanking God I was born a man. Yes, that right there is not fun at all. And any man that doesn't treat his wife with the utmost gentility and respect that would go through that for their child he needs Jesus' treatment done to him he's worthy of the whip oh hallelujah glory to God thank you Jesus hallelujah and if somebody else doesn't beat you if you ever get to revelation you'll beat yourself up really bad for it So the problem is rain and harvest is a curse from God. There was a time that the prophet Samuel was trying to get Israel to repent. And he said, it's in the book, he said, okay, you won't repent? It's harvest time. 
It's going to rain tomorrow. It's going to rain really bad. It's going to rain so much, it's going to destroy this entire harvest you're counting on. And it happened. We hear about Elijah praying for it not to rain. But we don't talk about Samuel praying rain as a judgment upon the people of God. Because rain is not supposed to happen in harvest. Rain destroys a harvest if you're reaping during the harvest and it's raining. Technically, you can plow with it raining. Technically, you can sow with it raining. But you cannot reap with it raining. So somewhere in this process, and you, I can almost guarantee you'll hear this again. Somewhere in this process, there has to be a dying out to self where it's no longer about what God is doing for me, but only what I can do and participate with him in his harvest field. Because I've got to stop receiving and start letting him do through me. And that's where the travail comes in. That's where the dying comes in. So, uh, if there is no sowing, there will be no harvest. I, I, I wish I could, I wish I had about a thousand dollars. Every time I've been asked this question like this, Brother Wright, we're doing this, this, and this, and nothing's happening. Or we're doing this, this, and this, and nothing's happening. Or we're, we're doing this, this, and this, nothing's happening. What's wrong? And you go, okay, <laughs> just calm down. Answer the question again for the hundred thousandth time. Because we do all the stuff we've been taught to do and it doesn't work. I had a gentleman, in fact, he's sitting in this room, called me years ago now, 20 plus years ago. He called me and said, Brother Wright, you've been here, you preached, you know this is a spiritual church. And it was. He said, they pray and fast. He said, Prayer room is filled most of the time. People fasting all the time. We got promises from God. Why aren't we seeing any results? I said, you don't want to know the answer to that. Oh, yeah, I do. I said, oh, no, you don't. Yeah, yeah, I really want to know the answer to that. I said, no, trust me, you don't want to know the answer to that. He said, well, tell me anyway. I said, well, it's your fault now. Here it comes. I tried to let you off the hook. See, we say we believe in something. We don't even prepare for that. We say we believe that church invitation, church service invitation evangelism is the method. And I asked him this question. Okay. This Sunday, 
50 people walk in your building to get the Holy Ghost, what are you going to do with them? If that's really the method, what's your plan? Who are all the people trained to do all the things to take care of those 50 people? Where are the standby ushers and greeters to take care of a crowd that is not your norm? Where's all the trained altar workers to take care of praying for that crowd that is normally your, bigger than your normal altar service? Where's all the people trained to, to teach the Bible studies to the, all these new converts? Do you know their names? Where's all the people trained to lead the home groups to help nurture and take care of these people? What's all your, what's your plans for expanding present ministries and adding ministries to put these people to work in the kingdom so they can be a part? It was silent on the other end of the line. I said, I told you I wasn't going to like this answer. So all your prayer, all your fasting, all your promises are worth zero zip and less than that because you don't even believe them enough to prepare for what you say is coming. And that's if church service invitation evangelism is God's method. At Apostolic Conference this year, the Lord asked me, told me to ask this question. Just how much harvest in your building through your methodology would it take to completely Blow your whole structure to pieces where it would absolutely fall apart under the load. How much would it take? Could you pray through 10 this weekend without any strain? Could you pray through 20 this weekend without any strain? Could you pray through 50 in one service? And nobody even questioned, what are we going to do? Could you pray through a hundred without absolutely losing your mind, going crazy because you don't have a clue what to do? You see, that's the point. You want to be traditional? You're a hypocrite. Because you don't, you haven't even done anything to prepare to handle Tradition working. Oh man, those folks that are all upset over some of the stuff I've said this week, you're, you're tearing this up, you're tearing that up. No, I'm not tearing anything up. You're the one tearing it up because you're proving you don't even believe it. Because all you're trying to do is have better church and preach better sermons. You're not even trying to prepare to take care of what you say your method can produce. (laughs) Forget God's method. Let's don't even talk about what God's method could produce. Let's just talk about your traditional method. Are you prepared to take care of what your tradition could produce?
The barn, the church building is not the field. Jesus said that the field is the world. There's absolutely no biblical basis for inviting people to church services in church buildings as being the primary method for sowing the gospel seed or New Testament evangelism. The only seeds that are sown without intent and human participation are weeds. I'll say that one more time. The only seeds that are sown without intent and human participation are weeds. The only seeds that are sown without purposeful intent and participation by humans are weeds. The only seeds that are sown without specific intent and purposeful activity to sow that seed is weeds. Weeds. <laughs> we, uh, See those little helicopter things fall off the tree? Or how about you're trying to have this pristine yard and that little puffy thing comes up that looks so pretty? Yeah, the dandelion. And it looks so pretty, doesn't it? And the wind comes and spreads those little white things everywhere and you go, oh, that's sad. It was so pretty. Don't worry. You'll have a whole lot more of them. In a little while, because they sow themselves. There was built into them the ability to sow self. (laughs) But everything we eat has no ability to sow itself. Tomatoes don't sow themselves. I love tomatoes. Beans, carrots, potatoes. Oh, and I don't know about you, but I am a lover of all things grain. Bread. Oh, I love bread. Don't I look like I love bread? I love bread. I love bread. Now, I've learned to eat bread that's got other kind of grains in it. I don't know what the seven grains are. I just see, I've just had some seven grain bread. And all I care is it tastes pretty good because I probably wouldn't like it if I knew what all those grains were. My mind would get in the way of the taste, and so I just eat seven grains. Okay, I'll do that. But bread, grains. Never sow themselves. And the good seed of the word of God is specifically designed that it has to be sown. On purpose. 
I've told this story many times, but the man that was the pastor of the church in Greenville, South Carolina, that my wife and I were preaching a revival for them the last couple of weeks of August of 1970, and I had been wrestling with the Lord over coming here. I didn't want to come here. I spent four very lonely, painful years here as a Pentecostal apostolic that didn't have anybody to fellowship, no church, no preacher, no nothing, and I didn't want to come back here. And so I ran from the Lord. I tried to go to Key West, Florida. I tried to go to Orlando. Well, he shut those doors down, to say the least. And uh, that man told me his testimony. He is from, his name is William Harvey Seacrest. He's from Sunbury, Pennsylvania. And he, uh, he his parents were not a part of any church, if I remember the story correctly. And uh, I think he was 16. And the pastor of the church in Sunbury at the time, was named, his name was Louis Manuel. And if you've been around Pentecost any significant length of time at all, you'll know that some of the more popular and effective tracts that have ever been written and used in our organization were written by Lewis Manuel. And 16-year-old William Harvey Seacrest was walking down a sidewalk in town one day, and laying on the street was a tract that had been handed to somebody on purpose and that they cast aside because they weren't interested. And God protected that track and made it sure it was laying in the right spot that when that young man walked by, it caught his eye and he reached down and picked that piece of paper up off the ground and he began to read it. And by the time he wrote it, read it all, He looked at the address on the back and went straight to that house or the house next door to the church, knocked on the door, and who the man that answered it was the man who was the author of the track. And uh, Brother Seacrest got saved either that day or in a very short amount of time and has built two great churches in his lifetime because a seed that somebody purposely sowed And that God took care of a seed that was activated by sowing, even if the one it was first given to didn't want it. Once it was sown, he took care of it to get it in the right spot. That not just one man got saved, but hundreds and hundreds of people have gotten saved, plus preachers that have come out of his ministry. If I'm not mistaken, one of his son-in-laws is, is he home missions director of Pennsylvania? Presbyter now. He's got another son-in-law that works at headquarters, correct? Right. Because of a track that somebody sowed on purpose that even though the person it was given to didn't want it, it was now activated And God took care of that seed. And it produced a harvest. There's a lot of ways to sow these days. 
book says give a little of seven also to eight. I really don't have any use for Facebook. There's about 10% good on Facebook that's worth even knowing. And about 90% that your life would never be altered at all if you didn't know it, except that it would probably be better not knowing it. And I acknowledge that, you know, it's a good way to communicate if somebody's sick or someone you know has passed away or whatever. You pray for the person or the family or whatever. I, that's all great. But I don't really care what you're eating at dinner. I don't really want to see a picture of your dessert. And I really could care less that you're ready to go to bed. And to presume that anybody else cares, I don't even know how to explain that. I mean, really, honestly, is your life so empty? Do you think it's necessary to communicate with the whole world that you're going to bed now? Okay. And people comment on that, and you go, there's no... the." the the one commenting is worse off than the one posting. <laughs> that you would take your time to comment on somebody posting they're going to bed. Or they like it. Oh God. Is this really where we've gotten to? Is this the world we live in? This is it? Seriously. But, <laughs> Brother Greg Godwin was here with us back in 2013. He was over the week of 4th July. We were sitting in a restaurant one day and he said, Bishop, do you have a Twitter account? Yeah. Why haven't I ever seen you tweet anything? I said, you're kidding. I don't even know why I signed up for it. I said, nobody wants to hear what I got to say. He said, I dare you. You dare me what? Just start tweeting some of this stuff you talk about. Let's see. I said, well, it is kind of strange. I got over 300 followers, and I'm, there's nothing to follow. I, I've, I've never never even tweeted anything. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you a miracle. I'm about 20 people shy of 5,000 followers today, and the miracle is I've lost that many. <laughs> At least... People that signed up, read stuff I posted, said, I'm out of here. Hey, do you know how hard? I gain followers by not tweeting. Because anytime I tweet, I'm telling you the truth. Anytime I tweet, I lose followers. <laughs> so, I mean, this is kind of flowing, and I realize that it's giving me a, an opportunity to sow seed. Broadcasting it wherever. And uh, I knew there was, 
I had had a, also had a Facebook page I wouldn't do anything with. And uh, I said, is there a way to have a, one of those, is there a business page or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got over 500,000 likes on that page. Or not like, yeah, followers, likes, whatever that is. And there's a gentleman sitting here today that I did not know till yesterday who's not a part of the United Pentecostal Church, but he's apostolic. It said to me, I've been listening to all your stuff on YouTube. Really? People do that? Okay. I don't put this stuff on there. Somebody here does that. That's why if you're contacting me through Apostolic Iron, the email address is Adam at apostoliciron.com. <laughs> My name's not Adam. That's a good hint right there, see. That is a really good hint of how this works, you see. But the bottom line is, there's no reason not to sow today. I heard somebody say, Oh, I, I don't even know how I read this. I was looking for something else and read it. I hate these people that make Facebook into a pulpit. Well, you make it into a cesspool. Shouldn't the pulpit get equal opportunity? Oh, hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We having fun yet? Yeah. I'm just letting that cow die a little bit before I go on, you know. It's it's in the throes of death. It's its legs are twitching. There's more blood on the ground than there is in the cow, so it's not long gonna be long now. We can go on. I I've said this already, but I'm gonna say it to you again. I can't you can't imagine the number of times that I've talked to pastors who are in such despair over all the trouble in their church. Brother Wright, we we pray, we fast. Why I don't understand why there's we do spiritual warfare. I don't know why there's so much trouble. Because as I taught last night, spiritual warfare is to plow the ground. And if you don't sow good seed in that ground after it's been plowed, the adversary will make sure you're growing bad seed. So I pray, I fast, I do spiritual warfare, but I don't do any seed sowing. And I'm going to grow something. Now, I either choose what I'm going to grow because I sow what I want to come up. Or I'm going to reap a harvest of trouble. Trouble. Church trouble. Because I'm growing weeds. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Here's the concern I've got, 
and I know in my spirit this is the case because I've been preaching this now for at least a full year, if not longer. What happens when God gives a command to go and we stay? In the last period of time, it's only a a verse or so in Acts 1, so I don't know if it's moments, minutes, hours, but in the last period of time, immediately before his ascension, he commanded them to be witnesses and to go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Did they do that? No, they didn't. They hung out in Jerusalem. What did God do? God. God. Not the devil. God allowed persecution to come to drive them out to do what they should have done voluntarily in obedience to the command. What kind of persecution is the Lord going to cause to get us out of our safe spaces called church buildings and out into the field? What is a, what is going to happen? In the very near future, whether days, weeks, months, or a couple of years, I do not know. I can't imagine it's going to be longer than a couple of years. What is God going to allow that's going to force the body outside of its buildings? You hear me? I'm speaking in the Holy Ghost. If God established the principle that the first church did not do what he commanded to take the gospel to the world, but hid away in Jerusalem, protecting themselves, and he did whatever had to be done to get them out, what will he do to us to get us out? of the places who were hiding and holding the gospel. You know, if you'll put this on the screen for me, uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, this is, an, this is scary. This is scary right here. I want you to see the category it, this puts us in. I, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not either. I'll jump and dance and run and roll in the floor in this building. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But do I work with people that don't even know I'm a Christian? Do I have no neighbors that don't even know where I'm going on Sundays? Huh? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Next verse. 
For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith. The faith is that is written, the just shall live by faith. Next verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What specific ungodliness and unrighteousness are you talking about, Paul? Those who hold, those who hold the truth in unrighteousness. I'm going to read to you from Strong's and Thayer's what that word hold means. The word hold means to hold down. It means to hold that back, hold to detain, to retain from going away or going out. To restrain, to hinder the course or the progress of. It's that which hinders To, to hold fast, to keep secure, to keep firm or possession. Why would he pour out wrath on somebody that's keeping it secure? So he's not talking about his that, is he? He's talking about people that are hiding the truth from the in the four walls of a building. Oh, well, your building's round, excuse me. Did you hear what this verse says? He calls those who hold back the gospel from the world by keeping it bound by their traditional concepts and structure. He calls them ungodly and unrighteous. And let me tell you something right now. I go to church. I go to church three times a week. I pay my tithes. I live holy. You calling me ungodly, unrighteous? No, I'm not. You can, don't take a breath yet, because I'm not calling you that. Right here. And we so hold the truth in unrighteousness that if you won't come to us where we are in our safe space, your chances of hearing the gospel are really, really slim. Now, every church has that weirdo that's just passionate about the truth. We blame it on their personality where they're just outgoing. And you know who they, you know, you know. They're just weird. They're not like the rest of us. They, they just, they'll talk to anybody. You don't want to go to the restaurant with them because they're going to talk to the waitress and that's embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, every church got, it's got a weirdo or two like that. Huh? Would to God everybody was a weirdo. But oh no, that's not how they're looked at in our churches. Oh no, 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 no. No. No, they're weird. They're the ones not like the rest of us. No, they're the ones not like the rest of us. 
Oh, praise God. Praise God. Praise God. I don't know what this thing is the Lord's doing with me. I I don't, I don't put labels on stuff, and I'm not in I, I just, I go where he sends me, and I flow when I get there. When the flow stops, I'm ready to go home. But this entails, well, this year alone, I've flown about 135,000 miles, and almost all of that's been overseas, the great majority of it, great, great majority of it, and whatever. And just flying wears me out. I don't care how good the seat is. It just wears me out. It just wears me out. So I got a, I started out with a set of just earbud noise canceling earphones and just, just to get some quiet because they really work if you got a good pair. They just, everything just goes quiet. And, uh, it, so all that noise and background noise doesn't just wear you out. So, and then I got, I, I finally got me another pair, real good over the ear set that just really blocks out everything. And, uh, the Lord said to me the other day, Are you really wearing those for the peace and quiet? Or are you really wearing those to tell people to mind their own business? So you don't have to talk to them. Because those earphones say, don't bother me. I haven't given them up yet. Being honest. I, the last trip my wife and I took, I tried tried going about half the flight without wearing them. And I had a headache about an hour into it. I got my earphones put them on my head. And the only person that wasn't talking to me was the one that doesn't talk much anyway. I love her. She loves me, but we don't we don't just chat all the time. Now she gets frustrated when she wants to say to something to me. She can't get my attention. But she's got ways of getting her get my attention, so that works okay, see. Is there something that we put up as a shield to people that says don't get too close don't don't bother me and we'll come to church and whoa take off running jumping up and down I used to be able to do all that rolling the floor Years ago, we were in between buildings and the church in Pensacola had helped us buy this little piece of property. And uh, I didn't have any place to go. They helped us run a tent. And we, we were in a tent for a month because we didn't have any building. And believe it or not, out here in good old heathen country, Maryland, I went to the sawmill 
and got a couple of pickup truck loads of sawdust, shavings actually, and covered the floor with it because that little piece of property, the reason I got it so cheap, it was kind of in a low place. And I had just gotten a brand new suit, $75. It was brand new. And I had never rolled in my life. And wouldn't you know it? He didn't let me roll on carpet the first time. He didn't even let me roll on concrete the first time. First time I rolled was in wood chips in a brand new suit. But I got to be honest with you. It was in a tent, so I guess it's kind of semi-outside. But I, I don't remember the last time I've danced or jumped or shouted in public. They'll think I'm crazy. I got news for you. In our culture today, if you believe the Bible, you're already crazy. And what cracks me up is people put the word Pentecostal on their sign and then they come to church and they don't want to get too demonstrative because they want to fit in and be thought well of. But you don't understand something. People ride by, see the sign, and see Pentecostal, and they, in their mind, picture that you're bouncing off the walls. Holy rollers. So you get all of the negative thought and none of the blessing. Is that why we're all changing the names of our churches now? Taking the word Pentecostal and most even apostolic out of the name? I don't know the name of your church. I'm just asking you a question. If the Lord gave you that name, God bless you. God bless you. It's his business. But why are we so reluctant? To be publicly identified as who we are. Well, we don't want to keep anybody away. Hey, I got news for you. <laughs> Years ago, there was a pastor. That, I preached my first revival for him ever down in Florida. And he had a sign, and I think it was Calvary Tabernacle, and it said UPC. And one Sunday morning, this couple came in. And they had church, and he preached. And he was greeting people at the door, and this couple went out and said, You know, this is not like any United Presbyterian Church I've ever been a part of. We've never attended a United Presbyterian Church like this. He said, That's not what UPC means. It's United Pentecostal Church. Well, we're the UPC. He said, no, I'm sorry if you check the facts. We were UPC many decades before the United Presbyterian Church was formed. Well, they didn't come back. So you can trick them in the building with whatever name you want. 
But unless you're hiding who you are in your building, if they're not hungry, they're not coming back anyway. You see, that's what I'm talking about. We get all upset over somebody saying church, church service invitation evangelism is wrong, but then we practice all of this other stuff that says we don't even believe in ourselves. We don't even believe in ourselves. We prove our own actions and attitudes. We don't even believe in ourselves. I really envision this service today going completely different than this. I did. I really, really did. (laughs) But here we are. I thought this was going to be a whole lot more fun than this. Praise God. (sighs) Okay. I'd like to spend a few minutes here as the Lord wills. Talking to you about the four great commissions. That's right. I said there are four great commissions. There's not one. There are four. We struggle with practicing one of them when we thought it was one. But part of the reason we struggle with that is because we don't understand there are four and that each one is a different part of the Great Commission. So we're going to look at it a little bit, okay? So here's the first Great Commission. And this was this one was given... The evening of the day of the resurrection. You check the time frame when this was given. And this is when Jesus said this to the disciples. All four parts of the Great Commission occurred after his resurrection. John 20 verse 19. John 20 verse 19. Then the same day at evening. Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace, that first day of the week, that's the day he was uh, uh, resurrected, on the first day of the week after the Passover. Came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side, Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Why didn't they recognize him before that? Because his face had been rearranged. I don't believe that. Then you don't believe Isaiah 52 where it says his visage was marred more than any man. So you believe that he could be beaten in his face for an hour by strong soldiers. And that the nails... The nail created scars that were there on his glorified body. The one through his feet created scars that were there on his glorified body. The spear in his side created a scar that was there on his glorified body. His back being beaten like a plowed field, uh, those scars were still there on his glorified body. And his rearranged face was suddenly restored to what it looked like. Even Mary didn't recognize him outside the tomb because he was beaten unrecognizable. If Jesus walked in here today, 
some little children and women would scream and maybe even a male or two because his face is not pretty. In heaven, it will be the most beautiful face we've ever seen in our lives. But if he walked in here and we didn't know who he was, we would wonder why his body was so disfigured. That's why they didn't recognize him. Verse 21. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, so send I you. East Expansion Translation reads this way. Then Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. Even as the Father has sent me on a mission for which I am still responsible, I also am sending you. The easy to read uh, version or translation says it this way. Then Jesus said again, Peace be, un- peace be with you. It was the Father who sent me and I am now sending you in the same way. The United Bible Society Translators Handbook, assisting those that translate the Bible into various languages, said that it needs to be translated like this. In the same way that my Father sent me into the world, so am I am sending you out into the world. Vine says the word send there is the Greek word apostello, which is the root word for apostle, and it means to send forth, and it denotes to send on service or with a commission. To send on a mission and to give someone the authority to accomplish that mission. And he said, and this is the first commission, that as he was sent into the world by the Father, he is sending us into the world in the exact same manner. Now, how many of us are obeying the Great Commission? That's the first step, you see. I need that to stay on the screen, please. I want it there so we're staring at it as the Father had sent me. He was so... Send I you. I want that to burn into your brain through the function of your eye. I want it to burn into your brain. I want you to see that he wasn't, he didn't call you to be in the crowd. He didn't save you to make up a crowd. He saved you to go do what he was sent to do. Now, if salvation today was totally dependent upon whether or not I am meeting his expectations, of this, 
I don't know what most of our chances would be. I don't know. It's not the only time that something similar to this is said, but this is... I'll show you another place that's similar to this. Let's go to First John chapter 4, verse 16. First John chapter 4, 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Next verse. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Are you saying we're gods? No, there's our problem, isn't it? Because we do a poor job of discerning the difference between when deity is talking to us and the word manifest in the flesh is talking to us I can't be like God but I can be like the expression of God in fact not just like him as he is so are we are does it say are I, sometimes my eyesight's a little can you verify for me that it says are not will be can I get a witness that's not a cultural thing I'm asking a question So it's in the present tense, correct? Let's have a little grammar lesson here. A-R-E is the present tense of the verb to be. Was is past tense. Will be is future tense. But are is, are is plural, is is singular, right? Present tense. As he is, present tense. So are we. Where? In this world. Really? You know, this is one of those verses when you're reading, you just, you read and it doesn't even register your brain because your brain goes, I don't have a clue what that's talking about, so I'm not even going to meditate on that at all. Just go on by here. But what if this is directly connected to the Great Commission? Even as my Father sent you into the world, I'm sending uh, me into the world, I'm sending you. He's not sending me to be the Savior of the world. He's sending me. (laughs) Oh, Jesus, he's sending me to manifest the Word. How about 1 Timothy 3.16? greatest mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh okay well what
word of God was manifest in the flesh. The I am? No, manifestation of the flesh is in time and space. So the I am cannot be directly manifest in the flesh. So Logos, which is the expression of the I am in the time and space, was made flesh, manifest in the flesh, made known, made visible in the flesh. Now, Titus chapter 3 verse 1 says, I'm going to wait and read that. Ready? Put them in put them in mind to be subject to principle. Oh no 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 no, I got them reversed. Titus one and three. Okay. But hath in due times manifested his word through. Now here's the other problem we've got. Oh God, have mercy! It's the same excuse we use in Mark sixteen fifteen. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Well, I'm not called to preach, so that doesn't mean me. I'll cover that in a minute because that's another one of the parts of the Great Commission. The Word of God. The Greek word here for manifest is the exact same word in the Greek and the English as it was in 1 Timothy 3.16. And the word was manifest in the flesh in Christ Jesus. And we are called to manifest the word by speaking it as the unction of God gives us to speak to people. And we have made that sermonizing. We have taken that supernatural thing right here. And made it so carnal, so fleshly performance oriented. Most preachers today don't have time to be on the streets because it takes them all week to write every perfect word down that they're going to read dramatically in the pulpit on Sunday. One of these days soon, if we don't already have it, we're going to hire drama coaches to teach our preachers how to preach so that they can take their script and do it more effectively. Oh, Brother Wright, that's unkind. I don't care if it's unkind or not. You think that's unkind? I'm really not telling you how I feel about that. I will say this. I really would like for you to find, show me one place in the Bible where anybody read their message. Oh, well, Jesus went in the synagogue and he read, yeah, he read the book. When it came time to preach, he closed the book and talked. Hello? <laughs> oh, God. Because we get sermons. We don't get words from God. If you've heard me minister at all, there are things that I say that you've heard said before. Some things I've said over again a lot because the flow demands it. That's what God's wanting to say. I've even started from the same verses many times. But if you listen to the tapes or watch the they're not tapes anymore, are they? The podcast. 
or you watch the video, they're not the same message. Why do we do that? So we don't have to pray and study. So we don't have to be dependent on God. So we don't have to trust God not to embarrass us by letting, uh, by letting us stand up there and fumble around and fool around and, and whatever. So we're not going to give God a chance to do that. We're not going to give. As he is, so are we in this world. Is that so what we are is what he is? It, it's got to go back the other way. You see, is what we are what he is? Because it's got to go back that way, you see. What I am right now, if that verse is true, is what he was or is, was in his 33 years or so of earthly life and ministry. Because those three and a half years of ministry were intended to be a model, an example of how we were supposed to do it. Oh, but he was God. So God got tired. He sat down on the curb of the well in John 4 because he was tired from his journey. So God got tired. God slept through a storm. God got hungry. Oh, here, you ready? Here's the big one. And God prayed to God. Oh, poor old Paul. He must have been pretty old at the time. Maybe he was just beat up when he wrote it because he said... Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, who in the days of his flesh offered up strong crying and tears unto him that was able to deliver him from death. So it wasn't the God in the man praying. It was the flesh praying by the power of that God. Just like I do. I'm doing no talking, but the power for that is coming from the God within it's got to come through this flesh to be prayer. But I don't want to pray any words, English, my language, or tongues that don't originate with him. But it's not me praying to me. And so here we are. <laughs> We're, here we are. Oh, God. We'll move on because this next one is harder to take, so we'll do it. The second great commission. This is not the day of the resurrection. They are still in Jerusalem. They haven't left Jerusalem yet. And they are hiding behind locked doors because they're scared to death. Mark 16, 14 and if you've heard me talk about it, here it comes again. John 14, 16, 14. And afterward, he appeared unto the leaven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. And I, 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 I read that with and I'm going, Lord, don't you mean for? No. The word with there is not the preposition for for. Well, what does that mean? That means he took their unbelief and hardness of heart and used it as the means whereby he railed on them. And if you don't think he did that, then you haven't even come close to studying what the word upbraided means. 
It just cracks me up when people think I'm so hard. I guess you don't ever read what Jesus did and said. Well, you're not Jesus. Who says? Oh, I'm not Jesus, but I'm a part of the body of Christ. And Jesus is the one inside ministering. Hello. And I commit every day to saying what he wants to say, how he wants to say it. Because it's not my right to edit his words. Neither the words or the spirit and attitude with which they're said. That's not my right. I've said this before, but years ago this guy was working here. He had a particular job here. <laughs> oh, God, have mercy. And he was in my office, claiming my case about how abrupt I was and how uh, ungentle I was in his mind. And he said, you know, that's why people don't like you. He said, I expect everybody to like me. And I said, then you've just confessed you've never, ever received a word from God. Because no man of God that's received a word from God and who has delivered that word from God, God's way, has ever thought everybody would like that. Because it's not happening. I've done this many times, forgive me, but here it is again. And no, this is still a seven plus. Okay. And uh, this is not a phone, this is a personal communication device. That's what it is. Uh, But I really only use that when I can't use this because this is what I prefer, but... It's a little hard to hold, so I I do this. So whatever. I don't want to be an Apple phone, but I want my goal is to be just function exactly like this phone does in principle. I mean that with everything in me. I want to be so neutral, so dead in my life, hid with Christ and God. That's my phone telling me there's activity in my backyard. See what I'm saying? Now, if I wanted to, I'd just push on the camera and see who that is. And it's being recorded so I can check later if I'd like. It's my personal communication device. I want to be a, a, a one of the Lord's personal communication devices. I don't want to tell him what he can say through me. I don't want to tell him what he can do through me. I don't want to tell him it's I'm tired. I'm recharging right now. I don't I, I come back later when I'm, my charge is full up again. I don't want to tell him any of that. Because if there's 1% battery left and he wants to use me till I'm dead, that's his business. 
And whether he's given me good news to communicate or bad news to communicate or I'm being communicated the other way, good news or bad news, that's all I want to be is this neutral. That's it. I want to be this neutral. This is my goal spiritually. I'm telling you absolutely 100% the truth. This is my goal. And it has nothing to do with an apple with a bite out of it. I keep that covered. Now that fellow that designed that or approved that design today, he probably wishes he could undo that. But that's not going to happen forever. So... Take what you want to out of that statement. That's what I want to be. That's what you're called to be. That's what every child of God is called to be. I don't tell him what I do, when I do it, where I do it. I don't tell him what I say or what he can or can't say through me. I don't tell him what he can say to me or what he can't say to me. This is not a leased phone. I bought this phone. I own this phone. And if I choose to, I could throw this phone against the wall. Now, I wouldn't have a phone then, but I could do that because I own this phone and I could do whatever I want to with this phone. I own this. I want to be that owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't use Siri for a lot of reasons. I have one lady that sometimes tells me what to do. That's the only voice of a female I'm listening to. She will tell you I don't really care for that voice telling me which turn to make in the car. So I will sometimes declare my independence by going a different direction and watch her try to recalculate just to prove to her You're suggesting you're not commanding. Turn left here. Not if I don't want to. Do a U-turn now. No, no. I'm going my way and you're going to figure out how to get me there my way just to prove to you I'm not submitted to you. I'm submitted to God. And I do my best to please my wife. I wish I was kidding. You're laughing and that's okay. But there's a lady back there you can ask and find out just how serious I am. So Siri is not my God that I can ask anything to and get an answer for. I've got a God to do that. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. I'll go on here. Okay. So afterward he appeared unto the eleven and as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now, <laughs> How did he know they did not believe? Because they were camped out in a place of safety, protecting themselves. And locked away from the world to protect yourself 
is unbelief. It's not holiness. Holiness is not for the purpose of isolation. It's for the purpose of insulation. It's like the fireman going into a fire with an asbestos suit on so he can save somebody in there without perishing himself. And isolation holiness, folks, are frauds. I just made some of you uncomfortable. I'm so sorry. I just have to say that again. People who use holiness as the excuse for preaching isolationism because we don't want people out witnessing in the world because they might get tempted are frauds. They don't even believe in what they preach. They don't even trust the one they're separated unto to keep them while they do what he commanded them to do. You show me where there's any holiness or faith in that because there isn't. Ooh, Brother Wright, this folks not going to like that. What's one more mark on the wall? I don't mean that facetiously. I'm just telling you. Hello? Hello? Okay. How do I know? How do I know that their unbelief was demonstrated by them being locked away in a place of safety? Because of what he said next, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I say to you again, the word preach there is not talking about an office or a ministry that's just for a few. Every one of us is to proclaim the word. Every one of us is to declare the word. Every one of us is to sow the seed of the gospel to every creature. We're all called to do that. Well, that's your opinion. No, no, we can read and find out that's not the case. So we keep reading. He that believeth and is baptized. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be be damned. And these signs shall follow them that preach. No. These signs shall follow them that are called to preach. No. These signs shall follow them that are specially gifted to do these things. No. These signs shall follow them that believe. Now whoever is preaching are they're believers and their preaching is producing believers who has signs following them where they can do exactly what was done to them. Because freely I receive, freely I give. They shall, in my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. 
They shall take up serpents if they drink any deadly thing and shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. You ready? So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God, which means the next verse happened on or after the day of Pentecost. It did not happen before the day of Pentecost because he was ascended, he ascended in heaven and poured out the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. And they went forth and proclaimed the word according to Thayer's preached there means to publish, to proclaim openly. And they went forth and preached where? Not 1535 Ritchie Highway, Arnold, Maryland. Not 212 East 25th Street, Baltimore, Maryland. Not Crofton Middle School. Preaching is for the purpose of salvation. And whether it's the kind of preaching that's done by all believers or if I concede the fact that there's also a gift of preaching because everybody's supposed to have faith and signs follow all believers, but we do know there's a gift of healing that's over and above the signs follow everybody else, and there's a gift of faith. And Okay. But there's that which everybody can do because the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Okay. But then there are things that there are special giftings that would take you into a different dimension. So I grudgingly concede that the preaching that everybody's supposed to do to preach the gospel to every creature is also compared with there are giftings where men have special callings to preach. But we are so addicted culturally to preaching, we don't make disciples. Because by definition, as I will share in a moment, a disciple is a taught or trained one, and preaching and teaching are not synonymous. Because if I was preaching, I would have been done at least an hour ago. By our standards. But I'm not a preacher. I am not called to preach. I can preach if that's what the Lord requires in any specific situation. But I am not a preacher. One of the things I am is a teacher. I have preached when the Spirit required it. And I actually survive it when he requires it. But a lot of the times what some folks would call preaching, I would call ministry because we're really all I'm doing is reading mail and prophesying to what I'm seeing in the mail. Is 
go to the pulpit with a direction to start, and as you start, you know the Lord invented both sonar and radar, right? Seaborne mammals use sonar. They send out sounds that come back to let them know what's around them. And bats send out signals that comes back to them. That's how they see. That's radar. And so those are spiritual examples of what apostolic ministry is about. Because as you learn to be sensitive to the spirit, everything you're saying is a ping being sent out. And people send that ping back and tell you what's going on. And sometimes that ping just tells you what you need to know. And other times that ping tells you what you need to say. And so you can call it preaching if you want to. But usually in those situations all I'm doing is speaking to the ping. It may sound like I'm rambling. But every bit of it's purposeful. Now, I, I acknowledge there are people who do have this gifting to preach. Oh, God. <laughs> Not really, Lord. Come on now. It's bad enough, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Lord. We are so inundated by culture. We, we, if we start asking where we get the stuff we do and say and trying to find it in the Bible, it would be devastating to most people. For instance, somebody just absolutely, they tear it up, man. In fact, they're tearing it up so bad you about to call the paramedics because their asthma is showing up really bad. And, and those folks have two voices. They have their preaching voice and they have their speaking voice. And they say to the whole world, I am now performing because I'm using my preaching voice. That glorifies God, doesn't it? When you're communicating to people that this is an act, this is not me, I'm not the vessel here, but this actor that I am is now the vessel because I have a preaching voice. And some folks, boy, they really get carried away because they not only preach with their preaching voice, but they preach in King James English. You go, God have mercy. You know what's a fate worse than death? To get trapped on the platform and have to sit there and try not to let anything show in your face while you hope and pray this gets over quick so you can get out of here. Brother Wright. Oh, I'll tell you something better than that. If I see I'm going to get trapped and know in advance, I find a good reason not to go. Because I don't like to be trapped by tradition where I have to act like it's okay with me. Who do you think you are? Apostolic. I'm just trying to be apostolic. 
Just want to be apostolic. I had no expectations to be somebody special or different or great, just whoever and whatever he wants me to be and do. That's good enough with me. I just want to be apostolic. Couldn't you just hear Jesus starting off in his dramatic voice? Can you just hear Jesus doing that? I mean, if you can imagine him doing that, we need to pray for you. you got a de- demon spirit working on your imagination. Because I can't imagine him or Peter or Paul or John or any of those guys doing that. But we do it. Why? It's expected of us. By whom? Not God, but by man. Which men? Those that have certain standards and expectations based on tradition. And what happens? Those who have the truth are restraining it, holding it. <laughs> you know, Paul, Paul didn't have this attitude. He says, Colossians 3 3. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. But tradition says Christ is dead and he is hid with us in tradition. Brother, I just won't let this go, will you? Not in 49 years worth. I knocked on at the direction of the Holy Ghost. Knocked on an apartment door on the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's 1971. It's holidays, but the Lord compelled me to go out. And he sent me to this particular door. Sent me there. And I knocked on the door. And they invited me in, husband and wife. And I'm sitting there with my high and tight military haircut on. You know, I got my suit and tie on. And uh, the guy was sitting there in jeans and a t-shirt and hair down to his shoulders. And uh, his first words out of his mouth made me question why he even let me in the door. Because his first words were, I don't believe in organized religion. And without any hesitation, I looked right back at him and said, neither do I. Any other answer, and R.E. Libby wouldn't be in the church today. Any other answer. And you hear him tell the story. I was the most, he hear his words, the most square-looking fella he'd ever seen in his life. He had no associates that looked like me. And wasn't really sure how I got in the door. Because you see, these feelings about tradition didn't start yesterday.
Okay, what happens between the second and third part of the Great Commission? Mark 4, 26. And he said, so is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow, spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. Was it David or Solomon that says, speaking of the wonder of God, the, uh, the way the bones are formed in the womb? I mean, I'm 71. My wife and I have two sons. Between them, they have seven children. I've been around for the birth of every one of those but one. And I will tell you right now, I am still in absolute amazement. I don't, I don't understand how that whole process works. How is it that that baby would die immediately outside the room, womb with no air, but has lived for nine months floating in liquid? How, how does that all work? How does two cells come together and make all of this sophistication? This absolute complexity that man hasn't even approached anything to this complexity. How does this all happen? You know, it's a good thing none of us have to give a dissertation on that before we can be a father or mother. I don't know how it works. I don't know how. When I speak Rhema, the act of speaking rhema that actually becomes the vehicle and the rhema that is that which is spoken actually is sent and that rhema when it gets to where it's supposed to be either in time or space or both that rhema then becomes the change agent that accomplishes everything that it says it is and does I don't know how all of that works. That is way above my pay grade and all of that. All I know is this. It works. And I can't explain to you exactly how that works. But I know this. I know that if I can get seed in the ground, even with my lack of knowledge and skill, in the right conditions, that seed's going to grow. I don't know how that happens, but I'm thankful it does. Except you be converted and become as little children. There is so much of what God is and does that he doesn't explain until you don't need it. He never explains stuff to me till he's ready to minister it to somebody else. Because while he is working it in me, I have to receive it by faith, walk in it by faith, let it work in my life by faith, 
without understanding what, where, why, how it works. I, I have to let that happen. I don't get the revelation or the understanding about any of this till after I have yielded and allowed this to work in my life and become what it's supposed to be in me. And then, for his purposes, he will explain it to me so that I can explain it for others. But if you think my whole process and my experience with the process of going from the seed of the thought or the command or the rhema to all of that being fully established in my life and working, that I have any idea what he's doing, why he's doing it, all I'm doing is going one step at a time in the process. That's all it is. That's a wonderful thing. When that whole process is over with, and I don't need it anymore, he says, okay, now I'll explain all this to you so you can teach somebody else. Because I expected you to do this by faith. Not by intellect, not by knowledge, not by understanding, but by faith. And so you sit here, and you hear this stuff. And your flesh... We're a bunch of you. It's just going crazy at times. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. You don't want to hear that. But your spirit goes, ooh, there's an answer I've been looking for. Uh, I don't, I, I thought I wanted to know why this isn't working. And now I know why it's not working. I'm not really happy I know why, but okay, at least now I know why. Now at least I know why. I don't know what's next, but for me and my situation, but at least now I know I get the answer to why it's not working. And that is this competition, this conflict between flesh and spirit. And should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow up, and he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. Obviously, God does all that. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And it might be interesting you for you to know, that the Greek word translated putteth in the sickle is the Greek word apostello, to be sent on a mission with a purpose, with the authority and commission to accomplish what he sent it to do. I think I will be talking about this more, but for right now, I'll just throw it out there. All harvests, biblically, were done with a sickle. The reapers would go into the field with a sharp sickle. And they would swing that thing through those bales of, uh, or, or stalks of grain. And then someone would come along behind them if it was a bigger operation 
or if it was a smaller operation, they'd lay their sickle aside for a moment and they would bind those uh, stalks up into what's called sheaves and uh, they'd pile those up till it was time to carry those to the threshing floor and then they'd pick their sickle up again. But in a bigger operation, those those people that did that, boy, they were, they'd been doing this a while, see, and they were, they were strong at it. You didn't just pick one up the first time. This is exhausting because you got this huge feel and every bit of it is cut down and it is cut off from the ground. It is harvested by being severed from its connection to the world. And we are trying to reap harvests without having sharp sickles or even using sickles at all. Why? Because that sickle is representative of the Holy Ghost conviction that comes, that cuts a person off from the world. And all this performance-based Christianity we've got does not produce any conviction And so, what we call as a harvest, I'm not sure what it is. Because there's no conviction. And biblically, there is no alternate method to harvest the grain crop but conviction. Biblically, there is no alternate method for harvesting the grain crop. Biblically, there is no alternate method for harvesting the grain crop. Conviction. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You know how you know there's no conviction? Because you try, we try, we, I've done it, been it, been there. We try to make our tradition work. Oh, won't you please come be saved? Won't you please come to the altar? Won't you please, please? Or if we're not please, saying please, we're hammering them. But somehow, we're trying to force them out of their seats. Manipulate them out of their seats to come to the altar. Why do we have to do that? There's no sharp sickle working. Where is the sickle born and sharpened? All the way back on Tuesday night. Because if I'm not living a life of true repentance and revival, where I'm baptized with the Holy Ghost and fire, I don't have a sharp sickle. No. If I don't have a daily relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is not religious based and religious operated, but it's, it's relationship formed and founded, I don't have a sickle. If I don't live in the word so that I'm absolutely convinced that the word of God is true and it's the only, it's the final authority in our lives and it's the only way to be, to be saved, then I don't have the personal conviction to operate conviction. If I'm not convinced and convicted, 
I can't preach conviction. So I have to be an entertainer. And I have to be a manipulator. And I have to know how to push the right buttons. And I know how, I have to know how to offer people whatever. Some would call conviction fear. It can take a lot of different forms. By the, by the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Yeah. Yeah. It can be fear. Sometimes it's not fear. Sometimes it's conviction of personal sin. Sometimes it's staring yourself in the face in the mirror of the word of God and going, oh God, I didn't realize I really was like that. I didn't realize that's really how he sees me. Oh God, have mercy on me. And of course the good news is, you see, the good news is that he loved me so much that the only way he could save me from this condition is that he hung on the cross in my place. And if the cross can't convict you, there's not a whole lot of hope for you. So I can get people to come and join up because of all of our wonderful singing. And I'm not against good singing or music. I, I can get people to come because our preacher is so talented and his messages are so interesting to listen to. I can get people to come because we have a beautiful facility and we have all kind of programs. But are they being harvested? Are they being harvested? I can learn how to market our church. I can learn how to do a wonderful presentation. But are the people joining us being harvested? And with many churches today, I can offer people to come and they can come fellowship with us just like they are. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to be saved. Or you don't have to change. God loves you just like you are. You can come just like you are. Where's the harvesting there? There's no harvesting there. It's all fake. It's all a fraud. Every bit of it. I said it. I said it really kindly. I didn't say it like I feel it. It's all a fake. It's a lie. It's a fraud. It's making people twofold more the child of hell than the ones that are leading it. Because there's no conviction. You don't get from the second part of the Great Commission to the third part of the Great Conviction co Commission without conviction happening between the two. Because really the problem is this. Anybody, you can hire people off the street to go pass out tracks. And the seed works. It doesn't matter. You don't have to meet our leadership requirements to spread the word. You don't have to dress like us. You don't have to, you don't even have to be saved to spread the seed. The farmer can let the kids from the neighborhood come into his yard and just scatter seed. 
but to harvest. Ah, that's why he said that we should pray to send forth laborers into the harvest because anybody can sow the seed, but to harvest it, I've got to have enough relationship with God that I live what I am sharing, that I have conviction in me that I'm not using against people, but I'm so convicted, so convicted that I can't talk to you without you being convicted. I'm so convicted, so convicted. Well, I want to have joy. Oh, yes, there's joy when you're so convicted and you know you're forgiven and you don't deserve it, deserve it or discern it, or excuse me, you don't deserve it, you haven't earned it, and, and he's forgiven, and he's forgotten because he's covered all of that with his robe of righteousness. And every bit of me that's inside that robe of righteousness, his robe of righteousness blocks his ability to see what's inside here. That's what he does it for because he promised he would forgive and remember my sins no more. And the only way he can do that is he puts on me his robe of righteousness because when he looks at me, he sees his own righteousness. He will not look past his own robe he put on me for as many as are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there was a fellow that tried to get into the marriage feast. He didn't have a wedding garment on. He got cast into hell straight from the wedding feast because he didn't have on the robe that identified him. Now, I can see past the robe. I live with what's past the robe. The devil can see past the robe. And you know what's so amazing? I love to remind him of this. Oh, you know this, this stuff you want to talk about? <laughs> You can't talk to God about it. He doesn't know what you're talking about because he's forgiven it and forgotten it because he covered it. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Psalms 32.1. And everything he has forgiven and covered, he remembers no more. If I want to remind him, all I got to do is take off the righteousness and live in my own righteousness. And the moment I take off my righteousness, and live in my own righteousness, I remind him of everything he at one time forgave me of. Conviction. Conviction. When are we going to have revival to such an extent that people driving by our buildings Conviction will follow them right like it was. One of my favorite stories of all time, the Welch revival in the late 1800s was a revival of prayer. There was virtually no real preaching that took place. People just started going to church and praying, and they would pray all night long. And this happened night after night after night after night after night. And finally, the place where they're praying got so filled, they started moving that prayer meeting to other places. And all around that country, there were people that would come home from work, grab a bite to eat, go to church, and they would pray all evening and all night. And supernaturally, they were able to go home, get some breakfast, put on their work clothes, and go work all day and come back and pray because it was such a supernatural move of God. And my favorite story is this. There was a valley in Wales called the Green Valley. And on one particular night, 
the spirit of conviction was so strong that people would begin to wake up individually not knowing anything was happening with anybody else. And they would roll out of the bed, onto the floor, beside their bed, and begin to pray and repent of their sins because conviction was so strong. And by the time they got back in the bed, they had had an experience with God that was unmistakable. And the next morning, when they got up and started sharing with the people in their house, And then with their neighbors, they suddenly discovered that every single person that lived in that valley had the same experience that night. Oh, that's right. That was a product of real, prevailing, persistent prayer that started with a great conviction of the sin of prayerlessness. According to his own book, Frank Bartleman, who lived in Los Angeles, wrote letters to Evan Roberts, who was one of the main people that was in that first prayer meeting in Wales. And he expressed his burden to him and Evan Roberts would write to Frank Bartleman and tell him about what was going on in Wales. And Frank Bartleman encouraged, excuse me, Evan Roberts from Wales encouraged Frank Bartleman to pray. Pray for Los Angeles. And for over two years before the first meeting on Bonnie Bray Street that eventually was moved to Azusa Street, Frank Bartleman and others met every night and prayed all evening and all night. For revival in Los Angeles. And just like the Welch revival ended up affecting far more than Wales, the revival that began in those nighttime hours of prayer resulted in a Zusa Street meeting that beyond all human comprehension affected the world. Affected the world. People would hear about the meeting and they would travel to Los Angeles and they would go to that meeting and the spirit of conviction there would slay them and they would pray and they would repent and they would be filled up and fired up And after a period of time, God would send them out from there to take that fire and light some other place on fire. And you think religious tradition's going to get this done? Here's the sad thing. Brother Horn, the sad thing is the religious traditions among us say, but we've always done it this way. No, we didn't. Because if you go far enough back, you find out here's how the ones that were the pioneers of all this did it. This is how they did it. Somewhere along the line, we left how they did it and started doing it from a traditional perspective. This isn't how it was always done. 
That's a lie. This isn't how it was always done. So even the excuse that's used by the religious traditionist is a lie. This isn't how Pentecost came about. This isn't how Pentecostal apostolic revival happened. It's not how. Have you never read Andrew Erkson's book, The Supreme Need of the Hour, when he tells of his own testimony as a young man being invited to go to, I don't know who's on the machine, but being invited to go to a town in Michigan. And the lady that invited him gave him a room to stay in her and her husband's house. And he went around looking for some place he could pray that might be able to hold services. And he found the basement under, I think it was some kind of business, and it was trashed. And he spent several days just cleaning it up and making it habitable. And he started praying. He started praying. He started praying until there was an outpouring of the spirit of conviction on that city. And then they would start having church. And over a hundred people received the baptism of the Holy Ghost in a few weeks after they started having services because he spent weeks and months dying for that city in prayer under conviction. But we preachers don't have time for that because we've got to spend all our time getting our sermons together because that's how we collect our check. And we've got religious traditionists that expect us to sit in the waiting room on every hospital emergency because nobody else can do that but the pastor because that's what tradition says. And we got lines of people waiting to be counseled because nobody else can help them possibly with their problems but the pastor. And all of that is religious tradition. It's not biblical. And it's all intended to keep the pastor so imprisoned that he doesn't have time to pray and to immerse himself in the word of God. You know, there's something like that. It's in the Bible. I I think it says something along that line. Let's see, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Could you go there? Let's just read and see if we come across something that just might be there. And in those days when the number of disciples was multiplied, there rose a murmur of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. It didn't take long, did it, for expectations to be put on the ministry. Next verse. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, not because we're so important, not because we're so much better than that. Next verse. You see, even the early church had business. Wherefore, brethren, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, 
whom we may appoint over this business so that we can, next verse, but we will give ourselves to prayer. We're going to make a gift of ourselves to prayer, continually to prayer, and to the ministry of the word. I have said this. I've written this. I've been blasted for this. So be it. Get ready. Here's another opportunity. Any training facility or program that I don't know who's in charge, but can you not hear this? Okay. Uh, any training facility, okay, or regimen that teaches men or women how to preach without first teaching them how to pray like an apostolic is a fraud. Any local church training program that is training leaders to be leaders without teaching them how to first pray as a child of God, as a laborer in his labors. It is doomed to failure. All it does is reproduce more religionists. I said this to a wonderful man just recently. He church had gone through some stuff and he'd lost some people. He'd gone back to work. And I said to him, brother, you, well, actually the Holy Ghost had me say this to him. I said, brother, you really need these funds? Well, not really. I just kind of took this job so I could meet new people. I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you quit that job and come to this building here early in the morning? And stay here and pray until something happens to you every day. And then something happens through you every day. And you don't leave prayer till God sends you out specifically to do something. Not some to-do list you've got, but where he's sending you. And let's see what happens in your church. Because man of God... If prayer is not your first priority, you are only expecting failure because you cannot do this. And if you don't die to yourself in prayer every day, Paul said, I die daily. If you don't do that every day, biblically at the beginning of your day, before you get involved in anything else. And I know there are some days that doesn't work. I got an early flight to catch. And I make the excuse I'm tired. So I don't get up at 3 so I can pray to, make a, to leave the house at 5 or the hotel at 5. Some days, some days he'll wake me up. But I don't wake myself up. But I play catch up. The whole rest of the day, even though my excuse is good to me. 
preacher, if prayer is not your first priority, your sermons are accomplishing nothing of positive eternal value. Oh, they're accomplishing something of eternal significance. Your sermons are causing people to be lost because they come from flesh and they're delivered by flesh because if you don't spend time dying out to yourself every day, let me tell you something. I don't know. Maybe you're a lot better person than me, but I'm going to tell you about my flesh. If I go through the motions one day because I'm tired or I'm sick or I got something really pressing me I've got to do immediately, the next day I don't immediately bounce back to where I was the day before that. The next day I got some, I got to apply myself a little more to get reconnected and flow. And if I go two or three days without really connecting and really dying out to myself in prayer, I begin to fear for my salvation because I can feel the difference in me. Things I don't even see, things I'm not even affected by when I'm walking with him in the spirit starting each morning. All of a sudden, I'm having to, oh, God, help me with that. Oh, Lord, help me with this. He already told me how to be helped. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But I, to walk in the Spirit, I've got to start my day in the Spirit. <sighs> I am about to obey the Holy Ghost. Believe that if you will. uh, That's between you and him. I'm about to obey the Holy Ghost. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I curse every effort of every preacher and child of God throughout a day that did not start by seeking first the kingdom of God so that by your love, Father, you will show us and demonstrate this to us in such a way it will no longer be able to be deniable or excusable. In Jesus' name, I speak it and command it to be so. Years ago, struggling with what I thought was God and apostolic. and Looking back, it was so much just me struggling with all this stuff I had been taught directly and indirectly, trying to meet expectations of religion. I realized there were days I couldn't pray. I didn't have any needs. I didn't have any glaring sins I needed to repent of. I didn't know what to say. The only redeeming factor in all of that, the thing that brought me through 
all of that was I had already broken through into a place of being able to pray in tongues anytime I needed to back when I was 22 years old before I even got married. And so on those days, I would pray in tongues. But I, the rest of the, nothing else really worked. I, I didn't know what was going on. And, and I said, Lord, why is it that I don't put prayer as my daily priority? And he said, it's because you don't believe my word. And I said, okay, okay. But your book has got a lot of stuff in it. What is it specifically I don't believe that I demonstrate by not praying? He said, I said, without me, ye can do nothing. And when you pray, when you do not pray, you demonstrate you don't believe that. Because if you truly believed that without me, ye could do nothing, you wouldn't try to do anything till you had prayed given yourself to me and allow me to have priority and be the authority in your life for this day. I prayed a prayer that I was told by some elders was a very foolish thing to pray. I prayed, Father, obviously I don't believe that. My actions prove I don't believe that. This is so important. Prayer is so important. And your answer is so important that whatever you've got to do to convince me that without you I can do nothing, please do it. And I've had people say to me, elders say to me, that was a foolish thing to pray. Don't you realize what you were praying? Yes, I realized that I was speaking to my heavenly father that I trust explicitly and that I love and that only wants the best for me. And I exercised my will in making a choice to tell him that no matter what he did, I was not going to accuse him and blame him for it, but that I recognized because of the strength of my flesh I needed to be convinced. That's what I prayed. No comment. I didn't pray that ignorantly. Did he do it? Still does it. Still does it. That prayer that was prayed probably 40 years ago. That thing I just said to you, said a while ago that he told me to say. That's exactly what he does in my life. And I consider that love. That's not a curse. That's his love in action. Because every day I start my day putting him into some priority later in that day, even if I do get around to him. I don't want that day to go well. My soul cannot, cannot afford for that day to go well 
Because if I can ignore God and things go well, that convinces my flesh. Have you got a verse for that? I think it, I think, is it Ecclesiastes 8.11? I think it is. Is it? Because sentence, uh, whoa, I really didn't think it was. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in them to do evil. I don't want, Brother Schoonover, I don't want that to be the case in my life. I want my father to chasten me immediately when it's a small thing he's chastening before, not till after it's become some big thing and everything I am and everything he's doing through me is in some kind of jeopardy. I don't want my flesh to have any kind of room to begin to think it can do this his its own way. You know why this verse is true? Because the men of God and the people of God that should be praying for those that find themselves in this condition and speaking raiment to those that find themselves in this condition, don't do it. Because they're too busy with their life. One of the biblical phrases for someone that's called to an oversight ministry is man of God. But am I a man of God if I run my own life, set my own schedule, have my own priorities? That lady sitting back there is the whole world to me from a natural perspective. She is my everything, naturally. And when God really wants to test me to see how submitted I am, he will tell me to do something that doesn't fit her schedule or the things she wants me to do today. And now I've got to make a decision whether I'm going to please my father the savior of my soul or the other half of me that is the absolute love of my life. He doesn't test me with people because I've already eliminated their opinions. He tests me with the one person that means more to me than anybody else in this world. It took me a while to figure that out. Because you see, I knew she was spiritual. I knew she prayed. And God would speak to me. And I'd share it with her, expecting her to feel a witness about what I've just experienced and heard. And it was exactly the opposite of that. She didn't agree with that. She didn't see that. But I need you to do 
But this needs to. And now I've got a, now I've got a problem. Who am I going to please? There's only two in my entire existence that are my priority to please. And what happens when pleasing one is not going to please the other? Or vice versa. What happens? Because while he gave her to me, which is a great deal for me, he gave me to her, which wasn't such a good deal, but he gives her the grace to put up with it. You talk about finding favor. He that findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. Favor, other than the Holy Ghost, she was, she's the greatest favor God's ever given me. And now he's going to use the second greatest gift he's ever given me in my life, second only to the Holy Ghost, and he's going to use her to test my commitment to him? Seriously? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, does he use her to do that? To me? Oh, yeah. Because you see, she's the district ladies president. And in our district, the, the district ladies retreat is traditionally the first part of February. I mean, November. Well, guess what the first day of November is? It's my wedding anniversary. And guess what day next year's ladies' retreat begins on? My 50th wedding anniversary day. Now, I talked to the board. They were willing to change it. I talked to her, said the board's willing to change it. She said, I don't feel right changing this for us. Wait a minute. Am I not the head of this family? <laughs> Hello? Don't you? As uh, one of my good friends says, you, you need to learn to speak bishop. Well, my wife needs to learn to speak husband. That was a suggestion. It was a request. But I was willing for it to be more than that till she pulls the God card on me. Now I got a problem. So where will I be on the evening of my 50th wedding anniversary? I will be in a ladies retreat service here at Antioch. It's here next year. And I will be here. And I will be interrupting that service. And she can just worry about that for a year. But I will be interrupting that service. Trust me. And by the time I've done, every husband represented in that building that night by a wife sitting there is going to be in trouble. Because she's going to go compare her, her husband to what I did that night.
Hallelujah. See, and she doesn't like to be the center of any attention. Oh, God. How many spotlights do you think we're going to shine that night, Sister Wright? Center of attention? It will be as if no one else in the room exists but you. By the time Jesus and me are through. Because all those precious ladies are going to get to celebrate with us that night. And if I have to get the board to override the ladies president so I can do what I want to do that night, I can talk them into pulling rank. Third great commission. How do I know it's the third? Because he sent them to a mountain in Galilee and met them there. Matthew 28, 16. Then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. So each one of these was spoken at a different time in a different place. And I'm giving them to you in chronological order. So the second, the third one is, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them saying, all power, Greek word is there is not dunamis, it's exousia authority. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, that's 1611 King James English, we would say it today. Therefore, go ye. Because what's about to be said, to be said is based upon the facts that were presented before this conjunction. So it's not the word and, it's the word, okay, I said all of this. Now this is what I want you to do because of all of this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Would somebody tell me what the punctuation is after the word ghost? colon. So that's not a period there, correct? So that means the sentence is not finished, correct? That means what continues in the next verse is a part of the same sentence, not just a part of the same paragraph, a part of the same sentence. And what comes in the next verse explains what's in this verse. Because in Mark 16, 15, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I'm paraphrasing now. Go into all the world and sow the seed of my good news into ground that has been softened and plowed so I can expect a crop. The word teach here actually takes up the narrative after everything that happened from the sowing, it doesn't even say anything about the reaping because it presupposes the reaping is done and starts with the threshing floor. Because when the sheaves are brought in from the field, They are piled on the threshing floor. You ask a question. Here's your answer. Here's your biblical answer. The Lord went from 
according to John the Baptist, he went from, and he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire, and his span is in his hand, for he will thoroughly purge his floor, which is winnowing, and winnowing cannot happen until the crop is threshed. Here's the big two words today. Retention and connection. Now, I don't believe we're supposed to birth babies and leave them on doorsteps. Okay? But hear me right now. I'm going to tell you what God does with his harvest. You do what you want with yours. But I'm going to tell you what he does with his. They don't bring the sheaves in from the field and put them in the barn. They bring the sheaves in from the field and lay them on a threshing floor. And when the scripture says, muzzle not the ox that treadeth out the corn, it's talking about threshing. And it was spoken of identifying the ox and what he's doing with the preacher, the teacher. And the oxen is chained to a post in the middle of the threshing floor at a specific length from the post. And then he's harnessed up to a very heavy timbered instrument called a threshing instrument. And he begins to pull that threshing instrument round and round and round on that threshing floor. Separating the grains of wheat from the rest of the plant, which is now given a new name, chaff. But because we're trying to build a crowd, we end up keeping the chaff, and we don't teach or we don't teach enough word to cause the separation to take place. Between the chaff and the wheat. And this word in the Greek that's commanded in the third part of the Great Commission is that exact idea. The word teaches to become a pupil, transitively to disciple. A disciple is a taught or trained one. But it implies, according to Webster's synonyms, that that person develops a relationship with the one whose teachings they're following. Not the man who's the instrument, but the one who saved them. So a disciple doesn't just become convinced of a doctrine. He becomes a personally intimately acquainted with the one who gave his life for them. Or they're not a disciple. And the third part of the Great Commission isn't about retention. It's about how to separate chaff from the wheat. Now, understand this. The preacher, the teacher, or the team of those that are doing this preaching and teaching 
in whatever setting, in every setting, one-on-one, in small groups, in a home Bible study, in a church service, or any, any place wherever that happens. These days, it's become pretty popular to meet somebody at Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever. If you're going to do that, at least go to Burger King. For Lord have mercy. Of course, the problem with Burger King, they, some of them have that thing up on the wall that says, have it your way, and that's not good discipleship. So I guess you don't need to go there. But don't go to the place with the tarot cards on the cups. I mean, if you didn't know the design of the emblem of Starbucks is taken straight from a tarot card, what planet are you living on? Do you honestly prefer to be that blind? Thank God my wife prefers Dunkin' Donuts coffee. I, you know, the point I'm trying to make, I got off the subject there. The point I'm trying to make, even though it's an important subject, it's like my conflict with that apple with a bite out of it. Couldn't you have just made an apple without a bite out of it? Why did you have to design it with a bite out of it? Don't you know what tradition says? That that's what happened in the garden? So you got to tell me that if I'm using your products, I'm identifying with what happened in the garden? Oh, praise God. Well, this is the way I look at it. What the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. <laughs> That's the only way my conscience is working right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's about the only way I could use it is uh, my conscience uh, accepting that. <laughs> okay, now we've had our chuckle. Let's find out if we're making disciples in obedience to the third part of the Great Commission. What is supposed to be taught? To make these disciples. Next verse please. Go ye in all the world. And teach. Teach all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father. And the Son and the Holy Ghost. Teaching them. To observe. Hello. Anybody reading? How much? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so if I can't find what I'm teaching in the book, I'm making them disciples of me or my religion or my tradition. I'm not making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes teaching them how to pray like he taught the apostles to pray. Teaching them how to be involved in ministry. 
like he taught the apostles. Paul actually went this far and said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what it means to be apostolic. That's why we have wonderful people that I love that are oneness Pentecostals, but they're not apostolic. Oh, they may preach Acts 2.38, one God. But they do not teach all things that he taught, commanded the apostles. Well, what all is that? You got a book? That's the fun. Go find it. Let the Lord lead you to what you're supposed to be focusing on right now. But the book is full of it. And if I can't find it in the book, why should I be teaching it? Oh, I know, I know, I know. know. There's some things like Moses taught divorce was okay. Jesus said it was because of the hardness of their heart. There's some things we teach today out of the hardness of people's hearts. We teach tithing. And so that opens the door to some to say, well, it's not New Testament. Oh, but you don't bring that up because you want New Testament. You bring that up because you don't want to give. Because New Testament is... It's not 10%. It's 100%. And we teach tithing because of the hardness of people's heart. Because they're not willing to receive what the book says. And when I say 100%, New Testament is, I lay it all on the altar and say, okay, Lord, this is all yours. It's yours. Now, you've commanded me to take care of my family, and you're the source of that. So you tell me how much of this I get to keep this week for my family. See, do you know any place that's ready to have that taught to them? So we teach tithing and have a biblical right to teach it because of the immaturity and the hardness of their hearts. Because if they want to give up the hardness of their heart, we'll just teach the New Testament way. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. (laughs) Here it comes again. Some of you are here about for the 50th time. That's why in the New Testament, the only sacrifice after the Lamb of God on the cross is a sacrifice of praise. Because you've got to own something to sacrifice it. I can't give you what's already yours and it called a, be called a sacrifice. So there are no sacrificial offerings in the New Testament because you don't own anything to give sacrificially. We're going to receive a sacrificial offering tonight, folks. What we're really saying is, I acknowledge that you don't believe God owns everything you have, 
So I'm going to take the risk of asking you to give some that you claim total ownership and control over for the for this cause here. I've had some people call me radical. I plead guilty. Go back and look up the true definition of the word radical. It means to return to the fundamental elements of something. That makes me radical because I have every desire to return to the fundamental elements of the book of the apostolic faith, of of being apostolic. I am radical in that I don't want superfluous. I want the fundamental parts of it. I want the real thing. I don't want a semblance of the real thing. And then finally he says this, the fourth, the fourth part of the Great Commission is spoken on the Mount of Olives just before his ascension. It's actually found in two places. Luke 24 and Acts 1, of course, because Luke wrote both of those. Luke 24, 33 says, oh, I, for time's sake, I'm not going to read all that. Okay. I'm going to skip down to verse 45. Luke 24, 45, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from dead the third day, and that repentance of remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as, as to Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was departed from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God and blessing God. Amen. Now, Acts 1 and 1 does not chronologically start after Luke 24, 53. Because if you compare the two scriptures, you'll find that what was talked about in Acts 1 at the beginning is actually different details of what was discussed in in Luke 24. So I'm reading. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye should be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? I, I don't, I don't, I don't even, 
I don't know how Jesus, I don't know what his face looked like when he heard that. I, I don't know, I don't know if his countenance fell. I don't know if his heart dropped in his stomach or any other whatever. I don't know how great his disappointment must have been at this point. Because their question proved that they did not at that moment understand the great majority of things he'd been teaching them all along. Proved it. Because the kingdom they're talking about is what we call the millennial kingdom. It's a restoration of the nation of Israel as a nation with Christ as the king sitting on the throne of David in Jerusalem ruling over the world. And that's the kingdom they were looking for and wanted to know if that was about to happen. And he tried to tell them, the kingdom of God's at hand, but it's within you. It doesn't come with observation. It's This is not the time for that kingdom. This is a greater kingdom. This is the kingdom that's going to produce that kingdom. And they did not understand this until after they received the Holy Ghost because they sure didn't understand it then. And he says, verse 7, he answered, and he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the far reaches of the planet. As far as you can go, you still be on planet earth. That's how far you're going to go, being witnesses unto me. And of course, many of you already know this. But the Greek word for witness is spelled M-A-R-T-Y-S, from which we get the Greek word martyr. So, here's the call of the Great Commission. Here's the work of the Great Commission. It starts with a revelation that we're not spectators or bystanders. That as he has been sent into the world and they observed him being sent into the world and they went with him, accompanying him while he was sent and then later he sent out 12 of them like he was sent. Then he sent out 70 more of them like he was sent. But that's the first part of the revelation because if I don't get the fact that I'm not representing religion and I'm not out there representing a church or an organization, but I am out there representing the one who has sent me just like he was sent, then I don't get the rest of it. If I don't get that, I don't get the rest of it. That's the foundational revelation. And then he sent us all into the world to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel, to sow the seed of the gospel to every creature everywhere in the world. And then after some period of time, 
after that seed's grown and we've harvested it, he says, now I want you to take that, what you've harvested, and I want you to process it and get the wheat out of those bundles. That's called discipleship. So the threshing separates the chaff from the wheat, and we don't separate it. While we're teaching the word, the chaff of the wheat just keeps sitting there. But then his fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his floor. So he comes in and starts throwing everything up in the air. That's winnowing. He just keeps throwing it up in the air. It's not the devil. You can't rebuke the devil. He throws it all up in the air. And the chaff is blown over the hill out of your place, off that threshing floor. And the chaff is very light. It has no substance. It's easy, easily affected by the wind that blows over the threshing floor. And the grains of wheat are dense and small and have substance and weight. And so even in the breeze, they will fall back down to the earth at the feet of the winnower. And as he moves around that threshing floor, he just keeps throwing stuff in the air. Just throws it in the air. It's dirty, filthy work. Because all that dust gets all over you. It's in your hair, in your face, in your mouth, all over your clothes. And so he he allows himself to be contaminated with what's in that pile so that he can purge the pile and get down to the grains of wheat. And then after he's got the grains of wheat, then he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that after you're converted, you'd strengthen your brethren. And so they had these big sieves and they would pile the grains of wheat into the piles of wheat in the sieve. They'd shake it. Their lives would be shaken so all the impurities would be made known and can be removed. And then and only then were you left with wheat or disciples. So, the word starts the discipleship process because it separates. Then, the Lord throws everything up in the air. And then, and then your world starts to get shaken personally, personally. Throwing up in the air doesn't, and the wind doesn't really affect the wheat. Goes up in the air, comes right back down in humility at the feet of the one who is thoroughly purging his floor. But now it gets really personal. Because I am personally put into a sifting process. That's what's been in my heart that I'm not even aware is there because I don't know my own heart. He begins to sh- sift my life to bring things to the surface. 
And the devil comes in and says, you're not worthy. Look at all this stuff. That's what he tried to do with Peter. But instead of those things coming to the surface, meaning you're cursed, it's part of God's grace in bringing them to the surface so you will repent because you can't repent for that which you're not aware of existing. But after that process, you are now a disciple. But as some of you already know, it's not over yet. Because now you store the wheat until it's time to use. And I found a verse this morning. I said, I found it. I came across the verse this morning. I don't know if I've ever really noticed. When Joseph bought out the lands and the labor of the Egyptians because Pharaoh, under his direction, had all this wheat stored. He made a deal with them when famine came. I'm going to supply the wheat. You're going to sow these same fields you used to own, and you're going to give one-fifth of this always to Pharaoh, and you keep the other four parts. One part will be for seed. One part will be for food. One part will be for prophet or whatever. I don't remember exactly. Anyway. But Jesus said when he broke the bread, he said, bread, this is my body that's meant for the, to feed the world. I paraphrase that. And so to get bread out of wheat, you got to ground it in a mill. And what does that do? It crushes the shells that makes each grain of wheat an individual because when it's poured into that rock and a hard place, because that's what a mill was back then, it was a rock and a hard place. It was a hard place with a rock squeezing you and grinding you between that rock and that hard place until your shell is completely annihilated that which you claim is still you me this is me you go into that mill as a me you come out as a we because the shell which is my individual being is ground to powder which keeps me separated even to the nth degree from the other grains of wheat but when the shell is destroyed we, are at, we get a new name now. We are flower. And God doesn't mix himself with us as flower until we become flower. You don't pour oil or water into grains of wheat to make bread. You've got to get rid of the, all that selfish identity until we take on a new identity, a we as flower. And then depending on the bread you're making, you will add in oil or water both of which are types of the Holy Ghost. And then you begin to mix that. And the Lord loses his identity as we lose our identity all over again because we go from flour. Now with him mixed in, we are now dough. And there are some people today that are weird because they like cookie dough, pancake dough, 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 dough. But no, I like it after it's baked. Oh, that's right. 
to get bread. It's got to be baked. And the dough has to be put in the oven and baked till it changes again from dough to bread. We have arrived. Not really. Because now he takes that bread out of the oven. He blesses it and breaks it all over again. And feeds a hungry world. Because that bread now is us with our new identity and him mixed with us after we have gotten rid of our identity through submitting to the mill, being made into flour. And now together, he and us, we become together something that can feed a hungry world. Bread, which is word manifested and demonstrated. And you think religion can produce that? Impossible. <sighs> There's more to this lesson, but I, I'm feeling right now that I really am supposed to start tonight with it again, of course, different than I thought it was going to be. Because right at this point, I don't know what time it is. I've got a way to figure it out, but I, I didn't look. I got a pretty good idea of how long it's been because my feet are killing me. Unfortunately for you, those two chocolate-covered oatmeal bars have not gone anywhere yet. But that's not why we're here. We're here because once again in this meeting, you've been brought to a crossroads, which it's not actually a crossroads. It's a fork. You're going to go one way or the other. You're going you're gonna to go with all the presentation stuff and marketing stuff and all the program stuff and all of that stuff that can be done without having to walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit and be empowered by the Spirit. Are you going to lay everything on the altar and die out to self and allow the Lord to teach you and take you where he's going and make you fully and truly a part of the church because what the early church was is what the last day church is going to be except greater because he said in Haggai how many of you saw the former house in its glory are you looking at the house of God today? I'm talking about the body of Christ and saying how pitiful it looks in comparison to that. But when he gets through with the body of Christ today, the glory of this latter house is going to be greater than the glory of that house. For those that are willing to take the the journey, those that are willing to submit to the process, those that are willing to be purged of all tradition, those that are willing to walk as apostolics, following what Jesus taught the apostles, no more, no less. For them, you're going to be a part of the house of God, 
in this last day that the glory of this house is going to be greater than the glory of the former. You can find someplace else to pray, but I'm asking primarily that you would just sitting where you are without attracting attention to yourself by moving, getting up and going someplace, but just for the next little bit here, right where you are, that you and Jesus would do a little business and you and him would decide which of the two paths you're going to take. Which of these two paths are you going to take? Are you going to preserve your way and what you want and what you've always wanted and what you always thought it was going to be? Are you going to say, here it is all, Lord. I don't want me. I don't want mine. I don't want my thoughts, my ways. I'm going to do it your way. Your way, Father, not my way. Lead me. I give myself to you. I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to do from here. I'm just telling you, Father, I choose this path. Now order my steps down this path. I submit to you, Father. Now order my steps on this path. Ita ha ha su kuti eta ha ha. Who my my. Who? Ita ha a lavahasa. Ye kuti eta ha sa. Who? Do you feel that witness of the Holy Ghost? My, 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 my. My. He's pleased with somebody's response. My, my. Ha. I'm I'm telling you the truth. I'm not making this up or hyping you. I'm telling you what I'm feeling in my spirit. And it's all over me right now. He's pleased with somebody's decision, with somebody's response. Your life, lay it down. Your thoughts, lay it down. His thoughts are above your thoughts. Your ways, lay them down. His ways are above your ways. Your plans, lay them down. His plans are greater than your plans. Your purposes and goals, lay them down. His plans and go- His purposes and goals are greater than yours. Your knowledge, your understanding, your wisdom, lay it all down at his feet, let it die. Let him give you his knowledge, his understanding, his wisdom. Lay down who gets the credit. Lay down who gets the glory. 
lay down who gets the recognition. Let him show your let him show you your place in his plan. His place for you in his plan. Let him show you his part for you in his purpose. Don't tell him what your place ought to be. Don't tell him what your part ought to be. Let him show you what his place is, what his part is. My, 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 my. There's some deep things going on in this room right now. I don't know if I've felt in any call to war exactly what I'm feeling here right now. There's some deep stuff. There's, There's deep things happening. There's some of you been looking for approval from certain people. And when you take this path, they're going to approve, disapprove of you. And if you haven't laid down everybody's approval except God's, you're going to miss the turn. You're going to miss the turn. You're going to miss it. Not my way, your way, Father. Not my will, your will. Not my plans, your plans. Not my purposes, your purposes. Not the place I covet, but the place you have for me. 
In the name of Jesus. 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 Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, for this word that you've spoken today. Thank you, Father, for this work of your grace in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you haven't forsaken us out of frustration with us. Thank you, Father, for your patience and long-suffering with us. But now, Father, Father, by your grace, open our spirits, open our minds, open our hearts, open our souls. That we would resist, not resist what you're doing and saying at all. To any degree, that you would find no resistance in us at all. No resistance. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're yours, Father. We don't belong to ourselves. There's nothing about us that's ours. You own us 100%. You bought us. Your love claimed us. Your blood purchased us. We are yours, Father. Your love compels us. Your love compels us. Your love compels us, Father. Your love compels us, Father. In the name of Jesus. Here's the picture, the spiritual picture that he wants you to take with you when we leave here in a few minutes. He wants this picture imprinted on your brain. I'm reading the pieces of this picture to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 5. This is a picture. It's one of the most amazing pictures of God's love and grace. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who is also given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, 
Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This isn't the great white throne judgment. That every one of us may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. In other words, your eternal reward is going to be determined by whether or not you were participating with him. Not your salvation. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. Or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us. It's captured us and compels us. It does not leave us alone to float idly, tossed about by wind. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Listen now. And that he died for all. The love of Christ compels this, that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore? Henceforth know we no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, everything that happens, beginning with verse 16, happens because we have submitted to the compelling of the love of Christ for us to live not for ourselves, but to live unto him that died for us and rose again. So what happens with that? Therefore, verse 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, or take note of this, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us, not just the word of recon, ministry of reconciliation, but the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's place, is the Greek. He is not here anymore. He has gone to heaven to be the head of the body. We are now the body. We are now in Christ's place. As the Father sent him, we've been sent forth because we're the body of Christ. 
Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness in God of God in him. Father, I commit this word and the work of your spirit that has occurred in each life that has heard this message today. This rhema from you. I commit this to you. I speak a word of angelic protection as a hedge around each one of our lives to protect this word and this work until you're able to get this solidified in us so that the demons of the the atmosphere, the fowls of the air, would not be able to come and steal this out of our lives before it produces the fruit that would glorify you. I command an angelic hedge of protection that the Spirit of God would work this rhema in us to bring us into unity and harmony with the Word of God, with the apostolic teachings that you taught them, that we might be fully in all things what you have intended for us to be and designed us to be for the, for the purpose, for your purpose and for your work in the earth that you're about to culminate in these, in this last few days, weeks, months, or even years that we may have possibly left in this time called the church age. In Jesus name, in Jesus name, it is so. In Jesus' name, I command it to be so. Amen. Give thanks to the Lord for that. Would you stand and do that? Give thanks to the Lord for that. Come on, give thanks to the Lord for that. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. There are so many of you here that I have a relationship with and I would love to spend some time with you. But I have been taught to know me by the one that knows me best. I'm happy to talk to you if you can talk moving. And however long it takes for me to get from here to pick my stuff up and get to my car, Say all you want to say in that length of time. Because I will not be slowing down and stopping to listen. I know where I've got to go. And i got to go someplace and get my feet up. Why don't you just pray and have God fix that? Because I don't want it fixed. Because this pain in my feet right now reminds me none of this was me. And if he wants to fix it, he can fix it without me talking to him about it. Period in the story. Seven o'clock. See you.